Hey everyone, welcome to season two of Reversing Climate Change. We are doing that podcast thing now and launching a Patreon. You can find it at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts. There are various tiers with different types of goodies available. Do you want to receive a special newsletter digest of what Nori Knots are reading that week? Be a part of a Nori book club? Get special access to Nori events? Go take a look at patreon.com slash Nori Podcast for what we're offering. And in that spirit of being lean in that startup kind of way that, you know, we like to do, this list of goodies is subject to change and we'd very much like your feedback. Is there something that you'd really like to see but it isn't listed here? Honest feedback does a lot to help us shape what we offer to you. You can send an email to podcast.nori.com or fill out our podcast survey anonymously in our newsletter, which you can find at nori.com slash subscribe. And thank you so much for listening to another season of Reversing Climate Change. Hello and welcome to the Reversing Climate Change podcast. I'm Ross Kenyon. I am the creative editor for Nori, which is a new title that I am now using because, what was it even before? Lead strategist, bit too vague, weird, open-ended startup title. As you might know, if you work at startups, sometimes these titles, they get a little bit strange. So that is my new title. I'm the creative editor. I think this is the first RCC where I've mentioned that. Besides that brief point of order, I wanted to mention that we are doing a bonus episode with an alumnus of the show. Diego Sayez Gill, founder of Pachama, is here to talk about all the things that Pachama is doing. And also, Diego has had some very interesting personal news. So thanks for coming back, Diego. Hi, Ross. Thank you so much for having me. Happy to have you back. I was intending to have you back on anyways, because we follow your progress, uh, much of which has been made recently. But before we dig into that, perhaps for someone who is new to Pachama, we should introduce what exactly you're working on. So could you please do a brief synopsis of Pachama? Yes, absolutely. Pachama is a technology company that has the mission of helping restore the forest as a solution to climate change. As you guys know, forests have a big piece of the solution to climate change because trees, as they grow, they remove carbon from the earth. And standing forests uh, that we have today still protected in places like the Amazon rainforest, uh, Congo, Indonesia, provide an immense service to the planet, already removing carbon uh, every year and compensating about a third of uh, current human emissions. So the planet needs to stop deforestation of primary forests immediately. It needs to start a massive reforestation movement and it needs to start managing forests better for timber production. The ones that the tree plantations that are dedicated to timber production needs to be managed in a way that maximizes the carbon sequestration of those forests. So. What we do is we use the latest technologies on remote sensing, which includes satellite images, LIDAR, and we combine that with machine learning algorithms that we use to validate and monitor the progress of forest projects that are restoring or protecting forests. And then we help these projects get funding from carbon markets. So similar to you guys at Nari, we connect companies that are looking to achieve net zero or carbon neutrality with certify carbon projects that are removing carbon from the atmosphere or avoiding emissions from avoided deforestation. But we, we have the value add of validating and monitoring all these projects with this data. 
in the long term, we want to help originate way more forest projects than they exist today. Today, there are many projects that are doing a great job, but if we are to solve climate change, we need to remove hundreds of gigatons of carbon from the atmosphere. So we are thinking deeply about how our technologies and our data can help accelerate the process of origination, reducing the cost of certification while increasing the trust on these projects. So that's what we're doing. And yeah, fortunately, we have already had the chance to work with great forest projects in more than eight countries. Uh, we're working with great corporate buyers, including Microsoft, uh, Shopify, SoftBank, and, and we receive you know, uh, the support of great investors. So we're still early on our journey, but off to a good start. Great. I think that's a, a nice summation for someone who is new to Pachama. But if you're listening and you are truly new to Pachama, there is a full episode of Reversing Climate Change you can go back and listen to. The link is in the show notes if you'd like to get more detail on all of what Diego and his colleagues are working on. And Diego, as I minorly buried the lead, I will unbury it now. You wrote a piece which caught my eye and the eye of many uh, on Medium called On Losing Everything to the Climate Crisis Except for Hope. So it sounds like forestry, wildfires, climate change. A lot of them have touched you personally rather than just intellectually at this point. Yeah, life sometimes take very ironic twists. And in my case, about three years ago, I... So I was going through a moment of personal uh, reassessment of my life. I decided to settle myself uh, close to the forest, close to nature, because I was, I was feeling the call to help protect and, and restore nature. So I, I bought a house in the Santa Cruz Mountains, which is a beautiful redwood forest south of San Francisco, and I settled there. And from that house is that I did the research and the initial brainstormings that became Pachama. All the early team members at the company came through that house and stayed uh, with me a couple of days. That was kind of like a rite of initiation into the team. So that house in the forest was really a temple for me. And in a very meaningful turn of events, a month ago, I decided to take vacation for the first time in, in many months. And I went up to Oregon to do a camping trip. And when I went back, my house was completely gone to the forest fires that recently raged California. So yeah, it's meaningful that those forest fires are a clear consequence of climate change, that those forests will need restoration soon you cannot make our mission more personal. And that's a little bit what I shared on that note. I also shared some, some of the wisdoms that have helped me during these times stay resilient in face of that adversity and that have helped me in the past as well with the hope that it could help others. But yeah, that's what happened to me. My house is gone. Not that I need any more motivation to work on this, but but now it's, it's really personal that I, I want to dedicate all my life to work on the climate cause. Wow, that sounds truly awful. I have a very good friend whose house burned down when he was a child and 
he brings it up and I can tell it still feels very violating and, and uh, mm-hmm. intrusive. And I can tell he, he still carries it with him despite it being 20 plus years ago. I can only, yeah. I can only imagine what it's like for you for yeah. you describe it as a temple. Yeah, no, I mean, and everything I had ever owned was there because I was away from the house when this happened. I didn't have time to take anything out. So all my possessions now, I was joking before we started, all my possessions fit on a weekender bag and and then a couple of books that I had taken with me for the camping trip. So everything, you know, art from my family, books that I had collected through many years, souvenirs from traveling around the world, letters, pictures, and furniture I had, you know, very consciously bought, everything has gone to ashes. So huge lesson on non-attachment, on impermanence. But yeah, it's, it's quite hard. It's, it's definitely the biggest disaster in my life uh, and probably will be, I hope. So yeah, definitely still processing the loss. Um, there's an inevitable amount of grief that has to be experienced. But as I said, I'm, I'm trying to use it as a catalyst for renewed action and energy on this very important mission that we will have to all face together during the next two decades. So, yeah. I imagine from reading a baseline asceticism and of not becoming too attached to material things has been of great use to you. Yeah. I think you were kind of already on that wavelength, though. Did that just further confirm you in this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mentioned earlier that my moving to the forest, my drive to start this new company, all was part of a process that I was living when I was turning 35. And that was three years ago. I, I had kind of like this midlife crisis, if you want, in which I, I felt that I was a little bit lost and directionless, or, or I didn't like the direction that my life, my life was taking. That led me to exploring a lot of different uh, new ways of seeing the world and including going to the Amazon rainforest and spending some time with uh, indigenous people that have been living there for thousands of years and have a completely different view of the world to going to Thailand and spending some time in a Buddhist monastery and learning to meditate and the wisdom of Buddhism All those learned lessons came to be useful in front of this situation, right? So from the indigenous people of South America, I learned that you really didn't need material things to be happy. You know, people in the Amazon, they live with nothing. You know, they live very simple, minimalistic lives, and they're super happy because they know that what happiness comes from, from being with people you love, from being connected to nature, from just, you know, having no worries. So I I was trying to live that way. I was trying to learn from them that way of living, you know, a a way of of minimalism and and focus on relationships. And then from Buddhism, I learned that everything is impermanent, that uh, suffering comes from, you know, attaching to what you like and rejecting what you don't like and, and being driven by ego. So I was meditating a lot on that. So yeah, in a way, I'm grateful that I got all this access to all these lessons before this adversity happened in my life, because that is what has helped me navigate through this, you know, just, and and then the practice of meditation that allows me to, on a daily basis, go back to that inner peace 
and that knowing that that everything is okay, you know, regardless of, of what might be happening outside. Yeah, that's a good thing for people in general to remember. I just hope, Diego, you don't overcompensate. And if Pachama is a massive success and you become wealthy beyond imagine, you uh, start <laughs> making houses made out of gold, buying everything in sight. I have a hard time imagining this is your preferred lifestyle, but don't overdo it, you know, with, with all of this being taken away from you. <laughs> I do hope that Pachama becomes very successful because that will mean that we'll be protecting and restoring a lot of forests. <laughs> but, but I already pledged to whatever wealth I get to earn in my life is gonna be is gonna go to nature. It's gonna go to protect and restore nature. That is my 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 life mission. And yeah, I mean this is learning, this this is teaching me that I really don't need a lot. And now I want to be even more minimalist. Some friends have started telling me, hey Diego, you know, what can I buy for you? And I was like, nothing, you know, I, I don't need anything. You know, I'm confirming that really material things are I read a quote from an Argentinian musician called Facundo Cabral, who says, life doesn't take away things from you. It liberates you from things so that you can fly higher and be lighter, something like that. That's my take towards material things. And this comes just to confirm that, that philosophy. Okay. Well, I'm really happy you've been able to integrate it in a positive way, I imagine, this was not as easy an experience for, for many others in this situation. So kudos for taking it in stride. I'm not sure that I would be nearly so resilient. Although I imagine there have been periods where maybe this has broken you down more than we're seeing here. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And and I'm also allowing for that. Right. So it's not that I, I didn't cry. I, I cried and I, I was, you know, sad and depressed for a few days. And yes, I mean, I think it's part of the grief process. You have to allow these emotions to come and, and, and live through them, just be present for them. So yes, this doesn't mean that you don't feel. I'm trying to, you know, allow whatever presents, but then know that everything passes and move on and, and know that everything can be, you know, reinterpreted to be uh, of meaning for your life. To what degree... Should one attribute culpability for the various wildfires on the West Coast to climate change versus various forest management practices? And mm -hmm. it, it really disappointed me that it was, it became a political issue that neatly divided along partisan lines. And I can imagine forest management, we've done episodes on it. Forests are definitely not managed perfectly in the United States and climate change is definitely happening and exacerbating all of it. Do you have yeah. any thoughts about how we should you know, unravel that one? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I, it also makes me very sad that uh, these days everything is political and ideological and, and one seems hard to have nuanced public conversations based on science, on intellectual humility. Uh, and I think this is a case. The forest fires clearly are a consequence of both climate change and, and the way that humans have interacted with the forest, right? So in California, we have suppressed fires that occur naturally for many years. That meant accumulation of fuel in a way that is not natural for these forests. And we suppress that fire just, you know, to protect utility companies or, you know, people that are living on those forests or companies that, you know, uh, have operations on those forests. And we need to manage forests in a way that, you know, is more long-term focused and short-term focused. But clearly, 
climate change is undoubtedly correlated to the beginnings of fires because the hotter the summers, the higher the chances of fire spreading. And this is just basic chemistry. And you just have to look at the history of fires in, in not only in California, but everywhere in the world. Everything is on fire. Pantanales in Brazil, Siberia in Russia, Australia last year. So all ecosystems around the world are getting on fire at uh, record rates. And that's going to continue being the case, right? So it's obvious that climate change and global warming is a part of the cause of this situation. So, yeah, I mean, I think we, we have to start having a more science-based conversation about this. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to act. That's absolutely the case. And it's hard to have nuanced conversations. This is why I'm such a strident I don't know. I don't want to pat myself on the back too hard, but but dang it, that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast because I hate that everything else has to be distilled into a tweet where we're yelling at each other. I'm trying, yeah. <laughs> trying to, you know, turn the conversation down a little bit, talk to everyone, and uh, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not not nearly as common as maybe it should be. That's disappointing. Yeah. yeah. Well, I appreciate your approach, and I, I think that's that's clearly the case, and it's it's hard to argue that that's not happening. Well, one question I had for you, Diego. And watching these wildfires, I'm in Seattle, so uh, we didn't get the same colors as the Bay Area, but the air quality was quite bad. Many days were, I believe the air quality index was above 250, mm-hmm. basically stayed inside for a week or 10 days or however long it was. So when I saw that, I was thinking about what happens to people who are working on forestry. Mm-hmm. This is the wrong way to say it, so we can reframe it, but were these forest fires a way of showing, oh crap, forestry carbon credits might be riskier than we thought? Or is this a chance for you to come in and say, actually what Pachama is doing might aid this in the future? A little bit of both, neither? What do you think? Yeah, it was funny for me to hear some people saying, well, look at all these fires, forest carbon credits don't work clearly, right? Whereas it, you know, to me, I see it well precisely because these forest fires are showing the importance of conserving and managing forests is that forest carbon credits matter more than ever. And yes, the risk profile is changing because climate change is making the risk profile of everything changing. You know, any, every single human activity is changing in risk when we have a planetary crisis, right? Forest in particular, yes. I mean, with uh, rising temperatures every year, there's going to be more risk of fire. And the same is going to be true for agriculture and for mining and for, you know, as I said, every human activity. So what we need to do is we need to be better at estimating that risk. One of the things that we've been saying about particularly carbon markets is that we have to have an insurance-based approach to these risks, right? As opposed to just a vanilla buffer pool, which is sometimes what is used on carbon markets, we should be able to estimate a risk profile of each particular forest project. And then based on that, you know, ensure uh, these projects. And I think what it means is that we need to do more. You know, we, we need to do more reforestation, more forest conservation, more improved forest management to compensate for this increased risk. Um, so the short answer is, these fires, to me, it just highlight the importance of making forests be part of the solution and not part of the problem. 
Are you seeing many conversations within the forestry industry about what might be done differently in the reforestation process? Yeah, I mean, you know, in reforestation until recently was thought of as planting tree for timber, right? Planting tree for timber in which you optimize for timber growth and timber harvesting optimization. That means, you know, planting one single species of tree, you know, pine or eucalyptus and and then harvest, you know, as often as you can for economic uh, benefit. But reforestation for carbon sequestration is a different game, right? So we need to plant native species and mix up for biodiversity. You're trying to grow a forest, no, not plant trees. And I think we are trying to, to push that conversation forward as we think about new protocols and methodologies, forest carbon on, on how do we make sure that we can incentivize the creation of, of forest, which as we know, high biodiversity forest sequester more carbon in the end. So that, that is definitely an important conversation. Ooh, yeah, I'd like to hear more about how that might change because I imagine reforestation is easiest to justify financially for if timber companies own the land or if they have some sort of leasing agreement with the Bureau of Land Management or Forestry Service or however it's done. Um, these sort of monocultures of trees are probably the easiest to log and make money on. Of course, that's at loggerheads. Wow, what a accidental pun. That is perpendicular to something that's closer to creating a diverse force that is good for biodiversity reasons uh, and or carbon sequestration reasons. Do you think that carbon markets will be enough to encourage people to go that latter route? Do you think that will happen? Yes. And that's what we're betting for. I mean, in this century, if we don't put a price to carbon and if that price is not high, then uh, we are not going to be able to avoid climate catastrophe, right? So we are betting in the future in which humanity has put a price on carbon and corporations and governments pay a high price on carbon through carbon markets, through compliance frameworks, and therefore there is enough economic incentive for change of land use from other type of activities or you know, for areas in which uh, reforestation for carbon sequestration was not thought of as, a, as, an, as an economically viable activity to become uh, you know, a, a, an interesting economic activity. You know, of course, the judge is still out there, but we're seeing the world moving in that direction you know, with all these large corporations making pledges to become carbon neutral by 2030, by 2040, China has pledged to become carbon neutral, right? So if everything continue moving in the direction that is moving, we definitely see the price per ton of carbon going up and therefore economic incentives for, for landowners to, to want to start forests. This comes up at a lot of shows lately, Diego, but there's been a lot of back and forth in the carbon removal community about permanence. And that probably started to get really serious with Stripe, uh, focusing so mm -hmm. heavily on permanence and their purchases of negative emissions. But that's been ongoing. But I've seen a lot of disagreements about whether if ecological methods of carbon removal face recurrent problems like forest fires, 
is it not mm-hmm. worth focusing our attention on something that is more industrial, mineralization, carbon stored in the built environment or product, something that's that's seemingly more stable, not likely to off-gas to a gigantic degree. Do you care to weigh in on, on that debate? Sure. I mean, <laughs> we were talking earlier philosophically about impermanence, right? Yeah, um, that's a funny link. Impermanence. In, in this planet and in this and in this universe, so permanence is an illusion. <laughs> that being said, uh, I don't think they're going to like that answer, know, Diego. I think you got to give them more than that. <laughs> I know, I know. But look, I think that precisely because, as I was saying, with fires, because ecological systems are more dynamic, uh, we need to do more of it. We need. We have a billion hectares available forest restoration, and by the way, talk about permanence. Borneo forest has been there for 18 million years. Congo rainforest has been there for also a couple of million years. And the Amazon rainforest, hundreds of thousands of years, have been there removing carbon consistently from the atmosphere, hundreds of gigatons. So I think that the challenges of making a forest succeed and removing a lot of carbon shouldn't mean that we don't have to do it. it should mean that we have to do more and better of it. And by the way, I'm not saying that forest is the only thing we need to do. We need to do everything. We need to explore direct air capture and we need to explore mineralization and we need to explore everything that is at hand because we are in face of a planetary crisis, right? So sometimes there is a lot of copy-paste thinking, you know, when it comes to, you know, permanence, leakage, these kind of things. We have to think first principle and say, okay, how do we assure ton year uh, a ton year carbon removal that can help us, you know, breach the gap that we have during the next few more important decades of the of the climate reversal mission. So, yeah, I mean, we're we're putting a lot of thinking on that. You know, as as I said, I think it has to be a debate based on on data and 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 in which new thinking is super important. Yeah, I, I broadly agree and. I want to see all of those things too. And um, I like to try to just pour cold water on when I feel that conversation is swinging too far one way or the other. I, I try mm-hmm. to bring it back down to, uh, we need all of it, guys. <laughs> let's, let's not, let's not uh, yeah. form teams and, and fight each other. And let's. Yeah. That's, I, 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 let me tell you another kind of like personal view on this. I don't want to live in a planet in which there is no forest and a bunch of director capture uh, <laughs> factories around, right? I don't want to live in that planet. I want to live in a planet in which, yes, there are some director capture factories around and there is plenty of nature that is not just a carbon sink, but it's a habitat of uh, billions of species that are part of the biosphere of this planet, right? So the case for nature as a solution to climate change shouldn't only be seen as a carbon sequestration maximalism approach, but the way to help recover the ecosystems and maintain the health of the planet. When we know that forests like the Amazon rainforest produces its own rain that then fertilizes agriculture fields all across South America. So it's, you know, we cannot judge Earth systems with a uh, limited approach, if you know what I mean. Like I, climate change is just one of the aspects of this planetary crisis. We need to 
create solutions that allow for a healthy planetary living for humans and other species to thrive for the generations to come. I think that's a good way to put it. And I think that focus potentially runs the risk. And I'm going to be conditional because there are versions of this that do broach this line and, and others that don't of that maximizing for one single variable, in this case, carbon may make it look like ecological methods are not worth the time or money uh, in relative terms. But of course, that's not the only thing that force and other ecological methods of carbon sequestration are providing. In fact, the way that I framed it as ecological methods of carbon sequestration is probably an instrumental view that you might reject as improper. (laughs) Well, you know, one interesting thing is that this is what the market is asking for as well, right? Yes, there might be a few carbon buyers that just focus on carbon removal, but we're seeing the majority of corporations that pledge to net zero and to science-based targets and to other sustainability uh, metrics that they care deeply about biodiversity, water conservation, community impacts, and the SDGs. They don't just want to be able to check a box on their accounting and say, yes, this carbon has been removed. They want to have a holistic approach to compensating the the environmental impact of their activities. So I think that's great because this is what market is asking for. The market wants uh, multi-beneficial solutions. Yeah, I'd be curious to see how this plays out as carbon removal matures because right now it seems that many of the buyers... They like having the story attached to it of there being uh, farmers or or forestry projects or other things that are charismatic in a certain kind of way that give nice warm fuzzies for supporting um, various groups of people they want to support. Or there's just the, the inherent biophilia of supporting projects like that relative to something that's more industrial. Um, But I wonder as we go beyond the honeymoon period of carbon removal and really start to scale, I wonder if some of that story loses its impact as people no longer are getting the PR points they did in the early days. And then it's really just about how many tons did you remove? Do you think there's any chance that we move that direction or do you think the story will always be key? Actually, I think that carbon removal with uh, biodiversity benefits and other benefits will be pay a premium. We'll have a higher price when we can effectively measure and score projects based on data on those metrics. Interesting. Yeah, I could see something like that emerging too. So if you want the bare bones, you just want the carbon. Okay. It was it was turned into concrete and it's in this building here. But if you want it to be... And there will be companies that will say, well, I just need to check the boxes and I just need to comply with the regulations and, and compensate for this carbon and they're going to go for the cheapest, which is the case today as well. And there's going to be others that do it on a more holistic sustainability. Like no, none of these companies are doing it because they are demanded by governments to do it. They do it because it's part of their sort of like corporate sustainability policy. And I think that, you know, even regulation markets, you know, the European Union is talking a lot about the importance of biodiversity. So we're going to see regulated carbon markets to be demanding of premiums for biodiversity and and other similar co-benefits. Again, it's just I'm hypothesizing about the future based on what I see on the market. Yeah, that's that's fine. I mean, this is open-ended and and who knows what will actually play out in reality. We're not fortune tellers, but yeah, many of those, those options seem plausible to me. 
Well, speaking of corporate sustainability goals, Diego, lots of stuff are happening for Pachama. I see news popping up quite frequently, most notably the Amazon Climate Pledge I saw recently. What is that? What happened? And um, who's involved in that uh, round for you? Yeah, we recently announced a new round of funding for Pachama. And, you know, it's really, really interesting how things happen in life sometimes because exactly one week after uh, the fires on my house, we closed a deal with Amazon for an investment on the company from their climate pledge fund. So I was like, wow, you know, life takes things away from you and then it gives you other things. But, you know, that, that was a round that we had been putting together for a few months when COVID started. I wanted to make sure that I didn't know how deep this crisis was going to be economically. Uh, I come from Argentina. I saw many financial economic crises in my life at this point, and I wanted to secure the funding to keep investing on this very important mission. So I went out and I started talking to, you know, some strategic investors, and I was positively surprised with a lot of interest from from great investors, and we were able to put together a round led by Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is Bill Gates' firm, uh, in which uh, many other billionaires have supported that initiative. And then we had other you know, great investors uh, coming along, Serena Williams, entrepreneurs like Scott Belsky, Toby Lutke, and then Amazon you know, uh, was the last to join. And it was great because not only is an investment in the company, but an intention to work together on, on helping them achieve their ambitious goals. So yeah, quite excited and great for that. Yeah, congratulations. That's a massive deal. And those names are outstanding. So kudos to you, Diego. Thank you. Thank you. I'm sure many, many bottles of biodynamic champagne were popped. (laughs) Not yet, because we cannot get together with the team. Yeah. Because with COVID, everybody's working from home, (laughs) which actually has been a good thing because now we are hiring people anywhere. We, We decided to go fully remote. We are a full remote company. Our last three team members, one is in Utah, the other is in Missouri, and the other is in Los Angeles. Um, so, yeah, good news is that now we're recruiting team members anywhere in the world, and, and that's going to open up the, the pool of candidates that we can tap into. But yes, we cannot get together to celebrate uh, achievements yet. At some point, hopefully, yes. Yeah, uh, that's exciting. Interesting. I didn't know you were going fully remote like that. What, what roles are you hiring for right now? Yeah, we're hiring engineers and we are hiring people on the business team. You know, uh, we're going to be hiring people on uh, marketing and on supply side, people with, with expertise on, on forest. But, you know, the, the most urgent searches are on engineers. You know, we're looking for machine learning engineers and full stack software engineers, front end engineers. And, you know, we're hiring slowly because we really want to make sure that we have very talented, very passionate people who really, you know, driven by the mission and that shares our values. And, and also we want to have a very diverse team. We put a lot of emphasis on diversity. Yes, with urgency, but, but with, with uh, patience as well. You're a man of paradox, it sounds like, Diego. Yes. <laughs> urgency with patience. Okay. Yes. I like that line. Okay. Well, the link is in the show notes. If you would like to apply or learn more about those positions, or you might know someone who would be a good fit for Pachama's culture. I imagine Diego, if someone's listening and they like what you're about, I imagine Pachama's vibe is is relatively similar. No? 
Yes, we like to talk about our values in three groups. We, we, we one day we did a session and we put a lot of sticky notes in a, in a wall with all, all, all the values of the team members and we group them into big heart, sharp mind and bold action. Uh, big heart is because we all really, you know, are doing this because we care for this mission, because we care for the planet. We are, you know, a big heart. You know, we are, we are we're, you know, uh, trying to communicate with compassion and kindness. Another way to put it is no assholes. <laughs> Sharp mind is because we want people who are, you know, data driven. And, you know, we, we respect, you know, science and engineering thinking. And then bold action, that's the entrepreneurial attitude that we want of, you know, taking risks and, you know, be willing to make mistakes because that's how you innovate and how you learn. But yeah, we also try to show up whole, you know, not put a mask on our you know, job, right? But be who we are. So, you know, it's often to be found in our meetings, babies or dogs or cats showing up in the Zoom <laughs> screens. So yeah, we try to keep it very, very real. That's good. I'm, I'm happy to hear that. Well, is there anything that we missed that you want to cover before we wrap up, Diego? Well, no, I mean, I think that I'm super, well, by the way, I told you before we connected offline, congratulations to your round. I am really excited to see that climate tech is now a category in Silicon Valley and that a lot of folks want to join the cause, you know, from engineers who want to jump ship from tech companies to venture capitalists who, you know, were also uninspired to keep investing in the, you know, next meaningless app. We need all hands on deck. So we need investors, we need talent, we need corporate, you know, people at big companies convincing their companies that they have to commit to climate action. And then we need people to vote in America. Guys, go out and vote. You know, we need all hands in deck because the climate crisis is here. Uh, it's going to be hard the next few decades, but we can, we can do it. We can navigate it, but we need everyone to contribute. Well, thanks for the kind words about Nori and thanks for the kind sentiments overall. Hopefully people can take some degree of, of solace in there. I think when people listen to the show and other climate podcasts or people speaking, there is a sense that because we've started companies uh, in climate tech, that there is work to be done and it isn't just a hopeless future of wildfires and disasters forever. So yeah. uh, I think working in this space gives one a sense of, of agency that is really powerful. And I hope that it isn't just something that we feel internally. Hopefully this is something that translates into bold action, as you say, in the real world. Yeah. And I think that just by doing it, it gives you, as you said, you know, a reason to wake up in the morning and to go inspired to to give it your all and to, you know, know that you can, we're going to be able to tell our kids and grandkids that, you know, when the world was on fire, we were working on trying to turn it around. Right. So I think that, yes, I do invite everyone to, to join and they can join companies. They can start their own companies. They can be activists within their own companies as well. Definitely. Well, thanks so much for being here, Diego. Thank you, Ross. And best luck to you guys. And best luck to you as well. Links to everything we talked about are in the show notes if you'd like to follow up. If you like the show, would you please open up the podcast app in your iPhone? Uh, give us a great rating and review if you would. It helps a lot. Help us get this in front of more people. Help us encourage your friends who are software engineers building an app they might not be as passionate about as they would be if they were working on something related to climate change. Let's make that happen. Thanks for listening and have a lovely day. 
Well, thank you so much for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and or Stitcher. It really helps us a lot to get this content to a wider audience. If you think what we're doing is useful, interesting, fun, hopefully all three, we'd certainly appreciate your rating and review. You can keep up with Nori at Nori.com, where there is a newsletter. That's Nori.com slash subscribe. There's podcast. There's a whole bunch else. Or you can send us an email at podcast at Nori.com. We are also now on Patreon at patreon.com slash Nori Podcasts if you'd like more content, engagement, and community. And thank you so much for your support.